How's everybody doing? Good. I did that at the five o'clock last night, and I was like, hey, how's everyone doing? Just silent. And I was like, all right, cool. Well, glad you guys are here. So, hey, if you've never been with us before, we are in um, the book of Daniel. If you don't know anything about the book of Daniel, I'm not going to rehash the, the first five and a half chapters that we've already covered so much, or I'm sorry, four and a half chapters that we've covered so far, but uh, it's pretty interesting. It's, it's a really great book of the Bible. It's written about 2,600 years ago, or, or at least the, the accounts from it were about 2,600 years ago or so. And it's interesting, and today it's going to come up big time. We're going to talk about some very sensitive topics today culturally, and it's odd how this chapter kind of lines up with what's going on in the world right now. So we're going to talk about, again, some controversial things a little bit this morning. But it's fascinating to me to read a book, not just the whole Bible, but the book of Daniel in particular, written so long ago uh, that it's still, still very pertinent and still very relevant to what we're doing right now. It's funny, people haven't changed much in the last 2,600 years. We're still pretty much the same. Um, we have different technology and we have different ways of expressing our opinions and different ways of living to a certain extent, but for the most part, the same struggles are still there and the same insecurities are still there. But it's been fun so far in the book of Daniel. Um, we're in chapter five today, and if you haven't been with us, I'm not gonna, again, I'm not gonna catch you all the way up to where we were, but let me at least catch you up where we were two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, we were talking Daniel, who's now an, an old prophet, he's been kind of in retirement for, for probably a couple of decades now. He had come into prominence under a king named Nebuchadnezzar, who started the Babylonian Empire, okay? Nebuchadnezzar, his time was done, and so he had turned his life to God, and he had become a follower of the true God. His son, a guy named Nebuchadnezzar, was now in power, but he was gone because he was fighting the Persian army. The Babylonian Empire and then the Persian Empire was starting to, to, kind, of, to, to kind of wage war uh, against the Babylonians. And so he was off fighting in war, okay? Much different times when leaders actually went out and did some of the fighting themselves. But, so the leader was out and he was fighting the Persian army, which left his son, a young man named Belshazzar, in power, kind of an interim king. Now, Belshazzar was a lot different than his father, who was a, went down in history as a good leader and a good man, than his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, who was actually a follower of the true God. Uh, Belshazzar was a lot different. We know that in chapter 5 because he's throwing this huge party, right? He wasn't a very good leader. He was quite a good partier. He throws this huge party in a room about this size in this banquet hall. There's a thousand of his closest friends, these nobles in there, you know, like the aristocrats are in this room and they're partying like crazy. They're getting drunk. They're being gluttonous. There's open sexual encounters between people in this room. And this young interim king is in front kind of leading this whole thing. And it got crazy. In the middle of this craziness, in the first half of chapter five, there was this long white plaster wall in this huge banquet hall, okay? Huge white plaster wall, and it was illuminated by a chandelier, a candlelit chandelier. And in the middle of this wall, in the middle of this party, a hand shows up and starts to write this kind of cryptic message on this wall, okay? So everyone is instantly sobered up, freaked out a little bit, right? And everyone's kind of appalled by this, and they're scared, and and so they're freaking out and they're crying and they're weeping and they're, they're just scared, right? Because this supernatural event is taking place. So what he does, the king, the interim king, he brings the wise men in, which is funny because the wise men are never right in the book of Daniel. So he brings in the wise men. They come in, they look at it, and they're just like, we don't know. We don't get it. And so his mom, the king's mom, comes in and she says, hey, there was this old prophet named Daniel 
that your grandfather used to confide in. And he was a great man and he could interpret dreams and he was wise and he could solve puzzles and very, very brilliant man. Why don't we call him in? And so that's what happens. And where we left off in verse 16 of chapter 5 is Daniel, the aging, retired prophet, came into the middle of this hedonistic party that had been interrupted by this hand, right, writing on the wall. That's where we get the term, the handwriting on the wall. And so he comes in and the young, arrogant king says, look, Daniel, I'll give you riches. I'll give you power. I'll give you the third highest rank in the kingdom. I'll give you all this stuff. If you can just tell me what it says on this wall. So that's where we left off, right? Kind of a cliffhanger. I don't know if any of you guys went up and kind of read ahead or whatever, but it's a really, really great chapter, and that's where we ended. And the topic that we talked about two weeks ago, or kind of what we pulled out of that first half of chapter five was this. How does one define character? We see good character in Daniel, and we see very bad character in Belshazzar. So how does one determine what character looks like? It's what we talked about two weeks ago. This week, we get to talk about this fun topic that we can only address the depravity, the sin, the brokenness of our city, society, and nation once we have addressed the depravity in us. We can only address the problems of a culture, a people, once we've addressed the problems of our own heart. Okay, that's what we're going to talk about, all right? Bear with me today. Um, Bear with me today. So I'm going to read a little bit. I'll do my best to break it down. You guys should have got a notes handout when you walked in. Looks like that. That has everything I'm going to say on it. It's also on version. That's the, the Bible app on your phone. If you click on more live and then events, our church will pop up and all the notes are on there. So uh, pretty convenient way to do that. Everyone doing okay? Okay. All right. We love each other, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so let me pray and then we'll get into this lesson, okay? Lord Jesus, God, I love you so much. Father, I pray for everyone in this room right now. God, Lord, let us approach your word objectively. Let us approach your word with an open heart and an open mind, open eyes, open ears. God, speak to us today, Lord. Your word is true and your word is powerful and your word is right, God. And I pray, Lord, that we just accept it. Father, keep your hand on me as I teach. Lord, help me to reflect your heart. Help the words that I say, God, be words that are pleasing to you, instruction that is, that is pleasing to you. And God, keep me honest and keep me humble, Father. Lord, we pray for every single church in our city, the bigger ones, the smaller ones, everything in between, God. We pray, Lord, that your kingdom is advanced through those churches. And we pray, God, that we can uh, put ourselves aside, God and Lord, and just focus on you. Father, we pray for uh, all the, uh, the people being fed at the park right now in this cold weather, all the homeless in our community. We pray for them. We pray, God, for uh, what's going on in Echo and Eon and all the other different things that are happening right now in our city, God. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. Be with us today, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, here we go. We are in the book of Daniel. We're in chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 17, okay? If you have your Bible, it's actually, it's in the Old Testament right after the book of Ezekiel. And I'm going to read a little bit, and, and I'll do my best to explain it. It says, Then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts and give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription for the king and make the interpretation known to him. Your majesty, the Most High God gave sovereignty, greatness, glory, and majesty to your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. Because of the greatness God gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages were terrified and fearful of him. He killed anyone he wanted 
and he kept alive anyone he wanted. He exalted anyone he wanted, and he humbled anyone he wanted. But when his heart was exalted and his spirit became arrogant, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven away from people. His mind was, was turned into the mind like an animal's, and he lived with the wild don- donkeys. He was fed grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with dew from the sky until he acknowledged that the Most High God is ruler over the kingdom of men and sets anyone he wants over it. Now, when you first read this, some theologians believe Daniel was getting a little sassy with the king, right? That he was showing some contempt for the king, and that's probably not the case. We have not seen that in Daniel any other time in the book of Daniel, that he's disrespectful to leadership. But at this point, he denies the gifts. He kind of denies any, he, he doesn't use any flattery to the king. So one could say he's being a little bit disrespectful. The reason he's probably be, being very direct and to the point is he knew because of God that there wasn't much time to waste. We're going to see that in a second. He had to quickly give, give this interpretation, quickly teach the lesson, the history lesson, and the sermon, essentially, that he's going to teach these people in this party, and then he's going to have to get out of the way, okay? Now, the reason why he denied the gifts is he wanted to make sure that he wasn't just getting gifts and rewards for doing God's work. So he wanted to make sure that there was no unclear motives, that there was no inappropriate motives in there. So he said, look, I'm not doing this for the money, I'm not doing it for the power, but let me do what God wants me to do for you, okay? That's another lesson for another time. Anyways, so Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar were really, really tight. What Daniel wanted to do is he wanted to show Belshazzar that once upon a time, me and your grandfather were like this. Once upon a time, I had a great relationship with the leader of Babylon. So not only did he want to allude to how good his relationship was with the previous generations in Babylon. He also wanted to allude to the fact that once upon a time, Babylon was a pretty well-oiled machine, and over the generations, Belshazzar, not so much. The leadership has degraded over time. Not only did he want to allude to the fact that you're not the leader your grandfather was, he wanted to say there's this huge contrast between earthly power earthly governments, earthly institutions, and there's a great difference between that and heavenly institutions or heavenly power. And so Daniel's brief lesson, he's going to teach a history lesson and he's going to teach a sermon, kind of all rolled up in one. And in this, it's going to point to why Babylon is about to be judged by God. So if you weren't here last week, there's a lot of, or two weeks ago, there's a lot of irony in this scene. Now, this would have been a big room, again, roughly about the size of this room. People would have just been just plastered out of their mind, right? They were super drunk. They were being gluttonous. There might have been men and women still putting clothes on because it was essentially a huge orgy that was going on. And in walks this aging prophet, right? Right in the middle of this hedonistic party that was going on. And right in the middle of this party that had been interrupted by God, the prophet walks in and is going to teach a sermon, So the last thing that all these hedonistic people are going to hear that night, and maybe the last thing they ever hear, period, because some of them are going to die, is a sermon. And so that's the way God orchestrated it. Now what this shows is it foreshadows a couple of New Testament principles or New Testament biblical truths. The first one is this, and we know this because Jesus said it. 
that before God comes back and gets his people, everyone on earth will have the opportunity to respond to the truth in some manner. Everyone. That's what Jesus said. He was even asked, when are you going to come back? And he said, I'm going to come back once everyone has had the opportunity to accept the truth, okay? So we see a foreshadowing of that in this room. They all got to hear the truth from the prophet Daniel, okay? The second biblical truth that comes up is this, is that all humans will bow to the power of God either voluntarily or involuntarily. Everyone will bow to the power of God. And we want to make sure that we bow voluntarily before he comes back, before we're forced down to our knees by God. So we see this foreshadowing happen in this room. So in preparation for identifying Belshazzar's sin, Daniel reviewed the sins of Belshazzar's grandfather. He basically, he wanted to show him that we're all held responsible for what we do. He said, let me remind you, if you don't know the story, let me remind you of your grandfather, Belshazzar. What happened was, is he was this brilliant, powerful king, and he fell for seven years. He was driven into insanity because his heart had become arrogant and because he had become exceptionally prideful. And so what, what, what Daniel was trying to convey to this young interim king is that the benevolence that God had shown to his grandfather made him responsible for how he handled that benevolence, how he handled those talents and that affluence and that influence. But his failure, Nebuchadnezzar's failure to be righteous and to be reasonable brought God's judgment on him. That's going to be the same for all of us. God's going to give all of us a certain level of benevolence. He's going to give us talents, abilities, money, influence, all these things. Everything we have is borrowed by God. And one day we're going to be held in account for what we've done. We're going to have to give an account for what we've done. And if we're not righteous, good stewards, and if we're not reasonable with those things, we're going to have to answer for that. So what happens in verse 21? If you guys haven't been here for the book of Daniel, the thesis or the overarching theme of the entire book of Daniel is the sovereignty of God. And in verse 21, it's restated. The most high God is ruler over the kingdom of men, and he sets anyone he chooses over it. That is the theme of the book of Daniel, that God sees all, knows all. He has a plan laid out, and nothing will go outside of that parameter, okay? In that, though, listen, here's the balance. Here's the hard part. We must be reminded that we are responsible for our actions, that everything we choose to do has a consequence, either positive or negative to that, right? We're held responsible, us. But God foreknows what we're going to do before we do it, so He holds our destiny. It's that uncomfortable conversation of we have free will, yet we are also predestined by God. He knows what's going to happen, but in the moment, you and I have the choice and we are held responsible for those choices we make, this fine line between these two things, okay? Next part. He goes on. He says, but your successor, Belshazzar, but you, his successor, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. Instead, you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. The vessels from his house were brought to you, and as you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines drank wine from them, you praised the gods made of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not hear or see or understand. But you have not glorified the God who holds your life breath 
in his hand and who controls the whole course of your life. Therefore, God sent the hand and the writing was inscribed. So essentially what he does here is he moves from the history lesson. Hey, let me remind you of what your grandfather did and what he went through, the history lesson. Now he moves into the moral or the sermon, if you will. And Daniel is extremely upfront about Belshazzar's sin. He's upfront about Belshazzar's irresponsibility, and he's upfront about Belshazzar's denial of the truth, which teaches us a very, very important lesson. And there's a fine line in this too, that in our lives and in the people's lives around us, we have to address sin. It's good to love people. We are to love people. But to love people correctly is to show them that there is enmity or space between them and God and that that space is created by our sin. So we are to point out the things that cause distance between us and God. Because if we don't, that distance between us and God, that sin between us, will ultimately lead us to destruction, both here and in eternity. Let me give you a good example. Let's talk about sexual sin. Let's talk about promiscuity. Let's talk about people who want to have sex with multiple partners before they get married. Now, we've kind of turned a blind eye to that in our culture, even our Christian culture. But anyways, let's talk about that particular one. If we don't address that, if we don't talk about it, if churches don't make people a little bit uncomfortable sometimes by bringing up things that are very black and white biblical sins, if we don't do that, not only will it cause a rise in STDs, the insecurity that comes up in young women who have given themselves to multiple partners, the arrogance and, and the bravado that arises in young men who see this as a conquest, not just the emotional, physical and, 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 emotional and physical things that come from this here, there will be a spiritual consequence to pay in eternity. There will be this space between the individual and God if we don't identify that sin and talk about it. So we've got to identify that. And the only way to resolve that issue, it's quite simple, is to acknowledge the sin, recognize it, ask God to forgive us, accept that forgiveness, and then we have to, we have to make choices to turn our path around and to go a different way. And if we don't do that, there will be this divide between us and the Lord that will eventually cost us a lot. And individually, we are responsible. We're responsible for our own actions. Belshazzar, because Daniel made him in front of all these people, he made him own up to his choices to be arrogant, gluttonous, drunk, blasphemous, and idolatrous. He called him out on these things in front of all these people, and he had to own up to these things. And in this situation, because Daniel told him his grandfather was a good guy, his dad was even a good guy, and so he couldn't blame his circumstances. Now again, this is something, and I'm not trying to be one of those doom and gloom guys. When we get up to the great throne of judgment in front of Jesus Christ himself, and he says, what did you do with your life? We're not going to be able to say, hey, my parents were divorced. Um, I, was, I was abused as a child, and guys, I'm not trying to be insensitive. I was abused. I was made fun of. All these things happened to me. I didn't have a lot of money. All these, and he, we're going we're gonna to blame all these other people, but God's going to look us in the eyes. Okay, okay, that's them. What did you do? What did you do? The Bible says that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Now look, I know some of you have been hurt by churches, hurt by pastors, hurt by families, but ultimately your relationship with Jesus cannot be blamed on the circumstances around you. Even in Ezekiel 18.20, it says this, 
The person who sins is the one who will die. The person who sins is the one that will have to pay the consequence. A son won't suffer punishment for the father's iniquity or the father's sin. In other words, our circumstances, whether good or bad, cannot be an excuse. Ultimately, it is our decision to follow Jesus or not follow Jesus. So we're responsible for ourselves, okay? We have to answer for our own actions. That's, that's part of that. There's another part of that. That though our sins cannot impede other people's salvations, what that means is, if I have unrepented sin in my life, which might impede my salvation, if I have unrepented sins, that doesn't mean that my two little girls will go to hell for what I've done. No amount of sin that I commit can keep my two little girls out of heaven. They don't bear the responsibility of my sin, okay? But there is an effect that my sin will have on the people around us. If I'm prideful, careless, if I'm negligent, it can seriously hurt others spiritually, emotionally, and physically. A lot of you guys have been the recipients of that. Because of what other people have done, it has hurt you spiritually, emotionally, and physically. We also learned that Belshazzar's sin was more severe. The reason why his sin was more severe is he did have good parents. He did have a good grandfather. He did have money. He did have opportunity. He had all these things given to him, but he saw those things and refused to do the right thing. Now look, let's take a look at us in the country that we live in. How much more are Americans going to be judged by God when we get up to heaven in the most readily available book in the United States is the Holy Bible. Every bookstore carries not just one or two copies of it, they'll carry 20 different translations of it. We have it in different languages. We have it in large print. We have it with study guides. We have it catered to men or women. We have it catered to teenagers. We have all the excuses taken away from us. We have free speech. We have the ability to congregate like this. Now, in, in, in areas like Asia and Russia, where the church is blowing up, it is getting smaller in the United States. We're so afraid of persecution. Do you know the church always flourishes in persecution? It's only, oh gosh, here we go. It's only when the government has accepted Christianity as the national religion that Christianity gets really, really thin and spread out. Look at the Roman Empire when they accepted it. It was the worst thing that ever happened to Christianity is when we let government come in and hijack us. It was the worst thing that ever happened to us. And so we're so worried about prayer in school and prayer in city halls. Don't worry about that. You worry about prayer in your home and see if that changes the culture around us. So look at the opportunities that we've had to recognize God. And even in the most dysfunctional situations in this room, there has been phenomenal grace that's been given to us. Do we see it? Do we recognize it? Do we see that God's hand has been on us through the highs, through the lows, through the ups and through the downs? Do we recognize that? Do we see it? So Belshazzar did not see it, okay? And there's always this kind of if-then clause that we see all throughout the Bible. And we see it in 2 Chronicles and we see it in Romans 10, 13. That if we call on the name of the Lord, we will be saved. Which also must mean if we do not call on the name of the Lord, we will not be saved. So therefore, since Belshazzar did not turn around, he did not heed the calling of God. Therefore, he was going to have to pay a price for his refusal. Now again, in this room, several hours had passed 
People sat and heard this entire lesson and Daniel laid it out for all of them. And kind of the crux of his sermon, if you will, is the conversation about what C.S. Lewis calls the greatest sin, which is pride. And if you want to go back and you want to research where evil comes from, right? If you want to go back and see the catalyst that propelled all evil, it's not found in Genesis with Adam and Eve. It's actually found in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. Long before humanity was created, there was a rebellion in heaven. And the rebellion in heaven from an angel named Lucifer that became Satan simply came from one thing. It wasn't lust. It wasn't greed. It wasn't even hatred. It was pride. It was pride. It was someone saying that, God, I know better than you. I think I can do a better job running this thing than you. And that is where all evil propelled from. And when we are arrogant and prideful, we are acting contradictory to God. I heard a pastor say one time, we can no more act like Satan than when we're prideful. We can no more act like the devil than when we're prideful. Do you know what the first words of the black Bible are? The black Bible is the satanic Bible. It's the words of Aleister Crowley, and it says, do as thou wilt. That's the law of the land. Do what you want to do. That's the law of the land. You are your own God. That is at the core of what satanic thought is. And all sin ultimately arises. All sin ultimately arises from the bedrock of conceit and self-advancement. All sin. Think about it. Last part. Here comes the fun part, the interpretation. So after Daniel has given Belshazzar a little uh, biblical shellacking here, he gets to the writing on the wall. He says, this is the writing that was inscribed. Many, many, tekel, parson. This is the interpretation of the message. Many means that God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought them to an end. Tekel means that you have been weighed in the balance and found deficient. Paris means that your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and to the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave an order, and they clothed Daniel in purple, placed a gold chain around his neck, and issued a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. And that very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom at age 62. So again, after he kind of lays it out, history lesson, brief sermon, lays it out. He says, now let me get to the inscription on this wall. Now the words that appeared on this wall were more than likely in Aramaic or what's called cuneiform, which is kind of a, a type of Aramaic, but it has vowels in it, okay? So you guys are kind of like, that's, that's really boring. But anyways, so the letters that would have been written on this wall would have been written backwards. They would, have writ, they would have read them from right to left where we would read left to right. So they would have been written backwards. And in English, if we would have broke down the letters, letter by letter, without the vowels, it would have read this, SRP, LQT, NM, NM, okay? But when you flip it around, like we would read it, and if you add the vowels in it, it would say many, many, tekel, parson. That's what it said. So they could read this but they had no idea what that meant. They could not um, break down or decipher what it meant because it had to come from a revelation of God. The scholars back then and even the scholars now could have never broke this code, if you will. So Daniel got this divine revelation and he deciphered this. And what the phrase alludes to is it alludes to a scale, 
an old, like kind of old school scale where there's two sides that weigh things out. So you get this idea of someone's life or someone's uh, uh, actions being held in the balance on this scale. So the simple translation, if this, was, if this happened in America in present day, the handwriting on the wall would have said, numbered, numbered, weighed, and divided. Numbered, numbered, weighed, and divided. The first part, numbered, numbered, many, many. God told Belshazzar that his days of ruling had been numbered and measured and time was over. From the part we just read, like it was really over. (laughs) It wasn't going to be weeks. It wasn't going to be another generation. That night he was going to be killed and his time was done. Now what this reminds me, I don't know if it reminds you, It reminds me that we all have a limited amount of time to steward the gifts that God has given us and that we will be held accountable for that time. We have the mindset that we're going to have forever to fix the things in our lives, and that's not true. A, God doesn't promise us tomorrow. It says in the New Testament that our life is like a vapor that comes out and it dissipates. Also, at the very most, we're promised 120 years that people will not live beyond that age. That's what it says in the Old Testament. So at the very most, we still, 120 years, in the grand scheme of eternity is not much time. We are not promised a lot of time, but what little time we have, we are going to be held accountable for. It says this in 1 Samuel. Do not boast so proudly or let arrogant words come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and our actions are weighed by Him. That everything we do, is put into the balance that our decisions, that our words, that our ideas, that these things are all put in to the balance and weighed out by God. So numbered, numbered, many, many. The next part is tekel. That Belshazzar had been evaluated by God's standard and that by God's standard, he was found deficient and wanting, okay? Now, here's what's important about this. And we do this a lot in our culture. We don't use the standard of God, righteousness, true righteousness, which is God. We don't use God's barometer to to determine what's right and wrong. What we've done in our very entitled, spoiled, arrogant culture is we have become self-righteous. What self-righteous means is we determine what is moral and what is immoral based on our opinions. We have determined what is right and what is wrong. And we have done this even in Christianity, in Christendom. What we've done is we have not gone back to the ultimate barometer of what is right and what is wrong, what is righteous and what is unrighteous, and we have determined what we think is right and wrong based on the culture around us. And I hate to break it to you, self-righteousness inevitably leads to hypocrisy every single time, every single time. When we set the bar for what's right and wrong, we will eventually contradict ourselves. And if you go back to God's standard of righteousness, I was thinking last night, I've never seen God, I've never audibly heard God, and I asked myself, Corey, why do you believe in God? The reason why I continually believe in God is the principles laid out in this book always work. They work. The system for economies that this Bible lays out works. The system for sexuality that it lays out works. The system for governments and and, and for how the family structure should be, it works if we would just follow it. And so it shows to me that these ways are right, that these ways are correct, that the standard that God has set never contradicts itself. But the standard of people, standard of people 
always leads to hypocrisy. The last part, parson, or some translations say Paris. This means divided and confirms what Daniel had prophesied. About 70 years before this conversation that we're talking about, Daniel had told Nebuchadnezzar, look, he had, Nebuchadnezzar had this dream about a statue. He said, the head is Babylon and the chest and the arms are the Persians and the Medes. They're gonna take you over one day. Now, as he's telling the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar this, this prophecy was starting to be fulfilled and the Babylonian empire was to be conquered and divided by the Medes and the Persians. What's interesting, what's fascinating is as Daniel was teaching this lesson to this king, as he was interpreting these writing, it was happening as they spoke. As they spoke, the Persians and the Medes were flooding into the capital city and they were taking it over. So Daniel knew this, right? Daniel knew that it was about to all come to an end. So one would ask, after he gave this interpretation, hey, hey, everyone in the room, guys, it's about to all end, like right now. And so they came out and they gave him the purple robe and they gave him the gold chain and they said, you're the third most powerful person. And Daniel's like, all right, I'm the third most powerful person in a nation that's about to be taken over. That's awesome. It's like right when the world's about to end and a billionaire goes, here, here's a billion dollars. And you're like, okay. You know, like it doesn't mean anything at that point. And so why doesn't he say something? Probably because he believed it was futile. Okay, I'm just going gonna, gonna, to, I'll take the purple robe. I'll take the gold chain. You know, okay, I'm, I'm third most powerful. All right. So he just didn't put up much of a fuss because he knew that the kingdom was under siege and he knew that it was about to be for nothing, okay? So that very night, right after this sermon, right after this lesson, right after this interpretation, that's when the Babylonian Empire came to an end. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 3.17 that God will destroy anyone who desecrates the temple. Now what's interesting is, from an Old Testament perspective, these people came in, they brought in these, these goblets and these cups made to worship the true God, and they worshiped a bunch of idols with these cups, right? That ticked God off, right? It was blasphemy, arrogance in the face of God. So someone from an Old Testament perspective would say, they desecrated the temple and God took care of them, right? That's not what Paul was referring to in 1 Corinthians. Paul wasn't referring to the desecration of a building. Paul was talking about the desecration of the person, now let's go a little bit deeper than these people just desecrating these cups, right? What they were doing, not just that night, but probably for years and decades, is they were desecrating the one temple that God really cares a lot about, the individual. The debauchery, the blasphemy, the gluttony, all this, and God brought judgment on them for, for tearing apart this temple. So what's fascinating is this. All the prophecy now became history. While Nebuchadnezzar was held captive, the Medes and the Persians, this is so, you should look this up, it's so interesting on how they took over Babylon. They diverted the waters of the Euphrates River and there was these kind of underwater sliding um, gates, sluice gates is what they're called, sliding gates. And when they diverted the water from the river, they could get to these gates, open them up. They got into the city of Babylon completely undetected and they took over the most powerful empire in the world without a fight. God just gave it to them, right? And they walked right in and took it. Okay, here's where it gets fun. We see in the Bible from the beginning, about chapter 11, 10 or 11, the first, you know, when Babylon was started, we, we, we start way back in Genesis. And when you go all the way to the end in Revelation, we see 
that God judges whole nations, that he lays a judgment on whole nations. I'm not talking about that everyone in the nation goes to heaven or everyone in the nation goes to hell, but there is a penalty for what whole groups of people decide to do. And in chapter 5, it closes with the judgment of a nation due to the intentional debauchery and idolatry of a people and its leaders. Let's let that soak in for a second. This shows us that whole nations feel God's judgment when a people, a people, collectively deny Him. Whole nations feel the repercussions of what goes on when their leadership and their constituents, their people, turn their back on God. Not everyone, but the majority and the leaders, okay? So, something that's interesting about that, God will judge whole nations, and if you disagree with that, just start at the beginning of the Bible, work your way through, you'll see it over and over and over and over and over again, right? So God judges whole people. Now, what's interesting about that, though, is if you zoom in a little bit, nations and people are made up of individuals. So there is a judgment on a people that allow and often praise sin. There is a ju- gosh, there is a judgment on a people that not only allow sin, but we praise sin. But the correction of a people starts with the individual. The correction of a city a society, a nation starts by the correction of the individuals within that society. You guys with me so far? This is how Jesus said it, okay? Now look, these scriptures that I'm about to read to you are by far, by far, by far the most misinterpreted scriptures of the entire Bible. The most misinterpreted five verses in the entire Bible lie in chapter 7, spoken by Jesus himself. So we're going to break them down, okay? Now, everyone, whether you're a Christian or not, everyone knows verse 1 of chapter 7. Do not judge. That's where they stop. The great philosopher Kanye West said, only God can judge me, right? (laughs) Do not judge. (laughs) I I was asked one time if I could box one person. And I was like, it'd probably be Kanye West. Anyways, (laughs) we all know the beginning of chapter 7. Do not judge. Let me read the rest of it. Jesus speaking, okay? Do not judge so that you won't be judged. For with the judgment you use, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Okay? Everyone loves that, right? Don't judge. You have sin in your life. Don't judge the sin in my life. We see that. And so Jesus says, Why are you continually trying to pull out the faults of others when you have this huge issue, this huge thing that has clouded your vision and you can't see straight because you have this thing? So Jesus starts to answer his own question, right? He says, or how can you say to your brother, let me help you with that speck and look, there's a log in your eye. Jesus' word, he says, that's hypocritical. That's hypocritical. But then he gives the solution, okay? And this is where no one wants to go. First, take the log out of your eye. Then, then you can see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. We are to judge. All throughout the Bible, it says to judge and judge righteously and without hypocrisy. We are called to judge. All of you in here are called to make righteous, sound 
judgments. All of you. So the misinterpretation is that we are to judge, but in order to judge the way Jesus wants us to, in order to judge righteously, we must remove the plank or the log. That doesn't mean that there's still not specks. It doesn't mean that everything's perfect. It doesn't mean that there's still not things in my life that I need to deal with. But when I remove those huge sins, I can then see clearly to start to pull the things out of my spouse's eyes or my neighbor's eyes or your eyes and... If your log is removed, you can see clearly to help me remove the specks from my eye. That only when we remove that and we can see clearly, we can start to deal with the people around us. But what we've done is we've said, oh my God, the gay community, that is so evil and vile, shut them down, shut them out, don't talk to them. And the whole time we have focused on that speck. We've neglected the log of lust and pornography in the straight person's home. Now, don't misinterpret me. I'm not saying two wrongs make a right. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying if I'm going to talk to my gay friends, I better make sure that I don't have a porn problem. If I'm going to talk about the hatred of Islam, I better make sure that the bigotry of Christianity is taken care of. Boy, no one likes me now. Now listen, we talk about the death and the destruction. Man, I hate politics, guys. You know I hate politics. I don't like to talk about it. I don't like to get into it. And I don't like to talk about hot topics just to rile people up. I don't like doing it. But as the church, as the church, we've got to look at the things that are going on in this world. And we have to point out the sin and we have to point out the atrocities. But before we go on another crusade... Before we go and we start fighting everyone else, we've got to take a step back and say, whoa, wait a second. Boy, everyone was about gay marriage when that whole thing passed, and we didn't step back as a church culture and say, man, we gave up on traditional marriage about 30 years ago. Ugh. I'm so busy talking about teachers praying for my kids, and I don't pray for my kids. Whoa. I better take that out so I can see clearly. Let me talk about something extremely sensitive. All these refugees coming into our country, right? Do you hate it when the Bible contradicts our, our emotions and our feelings? In the book of Exodus, I pray before I get up here that everything I say reflects the heart of God. And the only way I can confirm that is I go to the Scripture. And several times in the Old Testament and the New Testament, in the book of Exodus, God to his people said, treat the immigrants and the aliens well, because once upon a time you were an immigrant and you were an alien in the land of Egypt. Amen. No, ho, ho, ho. no, wait, oh, ho, ho, hold on, because I don't have all the answers. I don't have all the answers. I'm getting good at identifying the problems, but I don't have all the answers. Once upon a time, the Jewish people did not have enough food to eat, and they were starving to death in their homeland. So they left their homeland, and they came into another nation, another culture where they didn't speak the language, and they had nothing to offer the people. And because of God's intervention with a young man named Joseph, they came in and they lived in the land of Egypt for 400 years. And the land of Egypt provided for God's people. That's the tree from which Christianity came off of. 
Now look, I want us to be very, very careful as Christians. Very, very careful as Christians. Are there radical people that want to hurt you? Absolutely. But nowhere in this book can I find that Christianity is ever safe. On the boats that they bring in, go watch the Samaritan's Purse video of these refugees coming in. In boats filled with eight-year-old girls with hypothermia. And mothers and daughters. And you know what? Probably some radical Islamic Muslims too. But if I'm going to make an error as a Christian, if I'm going to follow the words of Jesus when he said, when I was a foreigner, you fed me. If I'm going to look at the words of the Holy Bible and if I'm going to set my politics aside, if I'm going to set my fears aside, I want to make sure that if I make a mistake, that I always err on the side of love and that I never err on the side of fear. What this whole situation has done is we're so busy saying those people and I feel like God is trying to shine a light on the darkness of our hearts. I feel like God is saying, Corey, you have some bigotry way down in there. Corey, you might have some racism way down in there. Corey, you may have some hatred buried down in there. Corey, do you trust me? Corey, will you be benevolent even to the ones that want to hurt you? Because as Jesus said, pray for those that persecute you and bless those that harm you. And when people say, but Corey, but Jesus. <laughs> but Corey, what about this? All I can do is go back to the words of the Bible. If we're going to fix our city, if we're going to fix our nation, it's not going to be by the hands of governments. It's not going to be by the hands of voting and legislation. It's not going to be by addressing other nations. It's all going to have to start by us letting the Holy Spirit, the light of the Holy Spirit, shine on the darkest chambers of our hearts and exposing the things in us. And it's only then when we get that log out of our eye. Listen, it's only when we get that log out of our eye that we can use wisdom on how to let these people come in. I believe in borders. I was born in St. Louis, man. We lock our homes and we lock our cars, right? When we moved to Tennessee, people were just like, oh, go on in, the door's unlocked. I'm like, not where we came from. I believe in, I believe in borders. Fourth-generation immigrant. My wife is also a fourth-generation immigrant. Our great-grandfathers were both immigrants, right? So I believe in borders, and I believe in a process. But when it boils down to it, guys, are we going to seize an opportunity to be the benevolent hands and feet of Jesus in front of the entire world? And it starts with your heart, and it starts with my heart. Would you bow your heads with me? Listen, guys, I know there's no easy answers. I know that everyone on Facebook has an opinion. I know, that, I know that there's extremes that neither one are completely right. It's not right just to open the doors. It's also not right to kick everyone out. And so you and I as Christians, as your heads are bowing, your eyes are closed, we're caught in the crossfire of extreme ideologies and neither one makes sense, right? We're caught right in the middle. And I want to encourage you, everyone who can hear me speak right now, I want to encourage you, don't get your ideology from Fox News or CNN. Don't get your ideology from popular culture. Get your ideology from the words of God. 
Let that drive your heart. Let that drive your thinking. Let that drive your thoughts. Is it uncomfortable? Heck yes. Is it dangerous? Yes. Is it scary? Absolutely. But the God, the Most High, builds up kingdoms and he sets whoever he wants in charge of those kingdoms. He is sovereign and he is in control. You and I don't have the task of changing the world right now. We have the task of changing ourselves. And only once we change ourselves can we flip the world upside down. Father, God, you have been working on my heart. I pray, Lord, that you work on the heart of everyone in this room. Father, we do not have all the answers. We do not have all the answers, God. But Lord, let us see people. Let us see people of different colors, of different faiths, of different nationalities. Let us see those people with the love of your Holy Spirit. Lord, let us examine our hearts. God, Lord, let us be vulnerable enough to take the light of the Holy Spirit and to shine it into the dark corners of our heart. And whatever we find, God, Lord, let us have enough courage to let you address it. You've exposed bigotry in me, God. I ask for your forgiveness, God, and I ask for you to remove it. As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, when you guys take communion today that represents the body and blood of Jesus, you can take that after you've asked God to forgive you of your sins. That's the only prerequisite, okay? And then you can take communion. Listen, when you go back to your seat, I'm going to ask you to ask God to reveal the dark chambers of your heart. Reveal the plank that you need to pull out so you can see other people well, so you can see their specks and help them, and then they can help you as well. Do that for God. Do that for yourself. Thank you guys for being patient with me. I love you guys so much. You're welcome to help yourself to communion. Thank you guys.